It's Muppeturgy with a hilarious episode about the Roy Clark episode of The Muppet Show. Yay. Hee-haw. Hoo-haw. Hoo-haw. Welcome back, everyone. Habawa. I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Habawa. I mean, Michal Richardson. <laughs> Christy Power. And Adam Grossworth. <laughs> We're here this week for Season 3, Episode 3 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of February 28th, 1978, and it aired in New York City on September 25th, 1978. It was number two in the air order. Here's a fun bit of history for you. Due to a strike by numerous labor groups, the New York Times did not publish a newspaper between August 10th, 1978 and November 5th, 1978. That is wild. (laughs) That is a long time. And the strike, uh, I believe, affected the Daily News and the New York Post as well. So our usual uh, source for fact-checking and other context, the New York Times, Times Machine, is not available because there was no New York Times. So um, this week and several other weeks this season, we will be using Ultimate70s.com, which is less fun for me because it doesn't have ads or any of that other context. But it does have a great rundown of headlines, um, and it also has pop music charts, which it honestly just never occurred to me to look up before. So this might become a regular thing. Uh, So here we go. Uh, We'll have a link to that uh, on the show page, obviously. In the news, uh, and these are sourced to the Chicago Tribune, sorry, starting off on a real downer, um, was a uh, two planes collided over San Diego, crashing in a residential area, and it was uh, the worst air disaster in U.S. history, is what the site says. I assume that means at the time. There are more details on Ultimate70s.com, but they are a bummer, so look them up if you want to. According to confidential documents, the Carter administration within the next few weeks will release plans to merge the federal highway and mass transit programs. That didn't happen, did it? That sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah, we have a mass, also a bummer. A federal mass transit program? Right. Um, is I mean, that there probably is one. Like, I don't know that it does anything. This one's also fun. The Senate demanded that the government save $2 billion by cutting fraud and waste. Sure, Jan. And wasteful fraud. <laughs> and fraudulent waste. This one's actually fun. Pollster Mervyn Field has some advice for California Governor Jerry Brown. Don't get engaged to singer Linda Ronstadt or anyone else. Field says Brown will lose votes in his re-election bid if he becomes engaged to Ronstadt, his girlfriend, for some time. The pollster says many voters cast their ballots for the governor because he's different. And one of the intriguing aspects of Brown is that he's still a bachelor. An engagement would damage his intriguing image. Getting engaged to Linda Ronstadt would be intriguing. Right? I didn't know that he was engaged to Linda Ronstadt. Well, maybe he wasn't. Well, I really was that he was with whatever. I didn't know that about Jerry Brown, who stuck around American politics for a very long time. On the cash box pop charts, a thing I've never heard of, but I looked it up. It's like Billboard, but not. And apparently some say it was it was more accurate, but Billboard um, like got more press. Um, so I don't know. Close enough. Um, the number one song was Boogie Oogie Oogie. The number three, number five, and number 11 songs were hopelessly devoted to you, Summer Nights, and Grease, respectively. Way down at number 83, but I can't not mention it, is Copacabana, one of my favorite Muppet Show numbers that we will get to in the somewhat distant (laughs) future. And the number one album was Grease. And finally, on television, following The Muppet Show on CBS was part two of the WKRP in Cincinnati pilot. And the NBC movie of the week was Overboard. No, not the Kurt Russell Goldie Hawn movie. This is an original TV movie. A woman falls overboard from her lawyer husband's sailboat and in flashbacks recalls her life with him 
and her, the fling she had with a Playboy. The IMDb like user reviews go into the plot in much more detail, and it is dark. <laughs> uh, and it starred Angie Dickinson and Cliff Robertson. You know what else is dark? Not having the New York Times crossword for months. I've been thinking about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Apparently a bunch of other papers like sprung up during this strike, including a couple that are still around. But yeah, I mean, just it went on for so long. Yeah, I'm on day 1,475 of my New York Times crossword streak. <laughs> wow. That's commitment. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. And skill. I'll have to ask my mother because she is on, I, I, I believe, like year 50 of her <laughs> New York Times crossword streak. And I, I, I bet she remembers and was unhappy about this. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Roy Clark was a country singer, a multi-instrumentalist, and an actor who deserves a lot of credit for the mainstreaming of country music in America. Born in Virginia in 1933 to a musical family, Roy learned a number of instruments at a young age. He spent his teenage years in Washington, D.C., where he would perform with his father. Clark won the National Banjo Championship in 1947 and 1948 and briefly toured with a band when he was 15. In early adulthood, he spent his time touring with various country and western bands, making television appearances, and recording his first singles. In 1954, future friend of Rolf, Jimmy Dean, asked Clark to join his band, the Texas Wildcats. Clark was the lead guitarist and made appearances on Dean's Town and Country Time program on radio and television. That is the predecessor to the Jimmy Dean show that Rolf would be on, because that wasn't until the 60s. In the 60s, as frontman for Wanda Jackson's band, Clark played many of the big rooms of Las Vegas for the first time and gained an important ally in Jackson's former manager, Jim Halsey. Halsey helped Clark get started in national television, connecting him to The Tonight Show, where he would become a recurring guest host, and The Beverly Hillbillies, where he played two recurring characters, Cousin Roy and his mother, Myrtle. At the same time, Clark's career as a solo recording artist blossomed. In 1960, he signed with Capitol Records, and before long, he was charting on both the Billboard Country and Pop Charts. He wasn't able to sustain that momentum with subsequent releases on Capitol. By 1969, he moved over to Dot Records, where he had a number of top 10 hits, beginning with Yesterday When I Was Young, which also hit 19 on the pop chart. Uh, That's one of the songs you'll hear in his episode of The Muppet Show. Subsequent top 10 country hits included I Never Picked Cotton, Thank God and Greyhound, the Lawrence Welk Hee Counter Revolution Polka, the number one record Come Live With Me, Somewhere Between Love and Tomorrow, Honeymoon Feeling, and If I Had to Do It All Over Again. Some of that chart success may be due to Clark's increasing visibility on television. As the 1960s drew to a close, the project that would define Clark's career debuted, Hee Haw. CBS's attempt to create Laugh-In for Red States debuted in 1969 with Clark co-hosting with Buck Owens. Although it only lasted until 1971 on CBS, the show continued in syndication and then on cable into the 1990s. In addition to hosting, Clark sang, played a gazillion instruments, and appeared in comedy sketches. In 1976, he became one of the first American artists to perform in the Soviet Union. In 1983, he opened the Roy Clark Celebrity Theater in Branson, Missouri, one of the first celebrity theaters in Branson, which uh, has become a tourist destination for that sort of thing. In 1987, he joined the Grand Ole Opry, which is interesting to me, and maybe Christy, if you know more about this, if I may peg you as the resident Southerner, like that seems (laughs) really late in his career. Is that because he was considered like too corny in middle of the road, or is that just 
because it's such a prestigious thing, it really does take that long. I, I don't think it, it's a like a seniority thing. I think it's more of a a timing thing because uh, the, the Grand Ole Opry for a long time represented sort of the old guard, older than him, and I, I think they stuck around for a while because my my memories of him are sort of twofold. It's like from the tail end of his hee-haw time and syndication, but also he's the first face that I think of when I think of the Grand Ole Opry. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I think it was just that like Roy Acuff had died or retired by then. And he was sort of like the, the face of the Grand Ole Opry for a long time. So uh, yeah, I think it was just suddenly there was a slot. Got it. There can only be one Roy at a time. <laughs> Rick Clark published his autobiography called My Life in Spite of Myself in 1994. Over the course of his career, he won seven Country Music Association awards, including Comedian of the Year in 1970 and Entertainer of the Year in 1973. His rendition of Alabama Jubilee earned him a 1982 Grammy for Best Country Instrumental Performance, and he was elected to the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2009. He died in 2018. Uh, so Chrissy already shared a little bit of her memories of Roy Clark. I'm curious, Chrissy, if you have more to say about him or if anyone else has any memories of him at all. I mean, I just have really warm memories of him. He, he was such a solid presence in country themed entertainment, at least at the tail end of his career. I can't really speak to some of the earlier stuff he did, but my, my grandparents in particular were big Grand Ole Opry people and, I, I have a lot of fond memories. He, he just, he, uh, th- there's a sort of spikiness to later country superstars uh, that he didn't have. He was very much like, I'm here to have a good time. I'm here to please, uh, you know, good, clean family entertainment. And uh, I don't know if there's something to be said for that. I think. I didn't even remember this episode from when I watched it on DVD <laughs> several years ago, <laughs> but I liked it. Yeah, my only knowledge of him is from this episode. Seems like a swell guy. I think his warmth really comes across in this episode and and, and a little bit his corniness. And you can very much see, if you have any idea of what Hee Haw was, you can see why he would be the person that they chose to to be the front man for it, just from what he does here. Oh, yeah. Hee Haw was the least cool of the variety shows, the variety sketch shows, I should say. Like they leaned super hard into their aesthetic. They figured out exactly what they were very early on. They're like, we we do corny country shit, and like they did what it said on the tin. Yeah, the talk spot in this episode really feels like it. It could have been a crossover from Hee Haw. Yeah, big time. It's funny. I couldn't remember. So you know, you'd mentioned that the that Hee Haw moved to syndication in 1971. I think it was part of what gets referred to as the rural purge. Yes. Yeah. There was like this whole slate of shows that were really popular uh, that got canceled as like, I think CBS specifically was who did it uh, decided to urbanize their image. So it was hee haw green acres, Beverly hillbillies, I want to say Gomer Pyle USMC was part of that. And and that was like one of the top shows, like top 10 shows of the time. So sort of an interesting decision, but it, I think it also changed the face of network TV 
in the seventies. So, and we're still feeling that today with eight hundred thousand CSIs <laughs> and lots of sitcoms about young single people in the city. Who are these weird people? So, Christy, you're a fan of Roy Clark. Are you a fan of this episode? I thought this was great for a season one episode. Um, (laughs) It's fine for a season three. I mean, yeah, I I enjoy Roy Roy Clark uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I I think his corny warmth fits in very well. I think he's a very seamless, you know, addition to the, the craziness on stage. But I also kind of felt like it was disjointed. The Fozzie plot was sort of at odds with everything else that was around it. The Fozzie plot also gave me a lot of anxiety. Uh, So, (laughs) um, yeah, but there was a lot of stuff I liked. So eh, it's okay. David? You know, for years before we started doing this podcast, I would insist that we lost something when Kermit stopped being mean and when Kermit stopped getting frustrated and exploding at his friends. But, like, boy, do I not like watching mean Kermit scream at Fozzie. <laughs> so uh, maybe that Jim Henson knew what he was doing as he evolved the characters. Um, yeah, that episode was fine. I watched it last week and then sat down again to watch it today and remembered almost none of it. So I think, like Chrissy said, season one, this would probably get a higher rating for me. Season three, it's like, what are we doing here? I mean, what we're doing is cross-promotion, but what are we doing here? I, I think maybe it was the power of low expectations for me <laughs> that I enjoyed it as much as I did. You know, you know, I love a cohesive backstage plot, but yeah, the the backstage plot like very literally does not intersect with Roy Clark in ways that I will pedantically complain about later. But for, for reality. For, well, yeah. Uh, for now, Michal, what did you think? Um, I think I enjoyed it more than you guys did, but also I'm biased. This is one of the handful of episodes that we had on VHS when I was a kid. So I've seen this one many times. There are some bits that I have very strong memories of and and the the fire backstage plot, I didn't recall at all. Maybe because even at age four, I knew this didn't make any sense. But overall, this was a cute one. I had a good time. I've got a few complaints, but I've wouldn't hesitate to watch this with somebody who was new to the Muppet Show. Roy! Oh, Roy Clark! 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Clark! Thank you, buddy. Uh, and by the way, I've got a question. I've got the cowboy suit that I'm supposed to be wearing, but where's the pair of chaps? Hello, hello, hello. Where are the pair of chaps, you asked? <laughs> hello, hello, hello. It's a far cry from Oklahoma. <laughs> that answers that question about where are his chaps. Okay, but... This is a sincere question. What is he wearing if not chaps? I was going to ask the same thing. It Cowboy sure looks suit? like chaps to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, we all agree. This from the get-go felt very hee-haw to me. Hee-haw had a lot of like, you know, one-liner pun to the camera, aw shucks to it. And yeah, th- this was him and his element. According to Muppet Wiki, uh, so these two chaps who come on, they're British, but they're pigs, I think. But one of them was built not. using part of the Statler puppet. I read that on the wiki and I was confused. So so there are two of them. One's wearing a, a seersucker suit and one's wearing a black suit. And I think the black suit one is Statler's body with a pig head. Maybe. Uh, are they pigs or I are mean, they what? Yeah, one has a pig head. Yeah. Oh, it's one of each. Could be. Okay. 
It may just be that the picture I'm looking at is from a weird angle and they're not pigs at all, but they sure look like pigs in this picture. No, one is a pig. Okay. And then one is like Wayne's head, maybe. Oh, but that's sort of like button nose. Gotcha. Well, they're very cute. Yeah. yeah. They are. Got nothing against these chaps. Uh, during the opening this week, also in place of Statler and Waldorf, a bit of Scooter's bloodthirsty side. Hey, somebody kill that light! Yikes. I mean, he doesn't shoot it. No, but he orders it to be shot. Well, I don't. I think he was speaking metaphorically. I think you're right. Somebody else's bloodthirsty side. Gonzo, much more of a festive approach. He blows his trumpet and a little party blower pops out. And it pops out, I guess, three times. And then Gonzo says three times and does a little satisfied nod. Is, I thought he might be saying three times in reference to some song I don't know or something. I mean, there is a song, Knock Three Times. but I Blow, think blow the party blower three times. <laughs> <laughs> blow your trumpet three times on the ceiling if you want me. <laughs> Wouldn't that just sound like a fart? <laughs> <laughs> I assumed it was a metaphor. Like killing the light. Yeah. Let's go backstage. Yeah, Muppet Show backstage. So this week, the Muppet Show is going country. Uh, when I said that the show was going country, just because Mr. Roy Clark is our oh, guest. Oh, yeah, one of my favorite performers. Yeah, well, I didn't mean it would actually be Al Fresco. Oh, he's good, too. <laughs> Excuse me, Kermit. I thought you should know the stagehands aren't here. Mm, yeah, yeah I sent them all to the country. Yeah. But the show is staying here. They're all in the country waiting for us. Fuzzy, we the show is going. We got to the show right here. Well, don't shut Fuzzy, up. Fuzzy, I'm just a bear. Fuzzy, I'm trying Fuzzy, my you best. Can't this the way to the country. I'm just doing the best I can. <laughs> it's funny how he sent the stagehands to the country, but not the performers. Presumably, there's not a stage he sent them to. You know, I assumed he sent them ahead to set up, but you raise a really interesting point of to where? <laughs> just the country. You know, put that in Google Maps and see what happens. I have a brilliant idea. Disney, call me. <laughs> so since we never see the stagehands in the entire run of the show, as far as I know, mm-hmm. um, I think I've solved the forever problem of how to make a new Muppet show. I want a show about the crew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could be all new characters. Except George. Which, you need George. You need George and you need... Um, um, Beauregard. Yes, but... Uh, oh my God. I, uh, Mildred. No, no. Yes, but... Um, what is her Hilda? name? The wardrobe lady from season one. Hilda. Hilda, thank you. So like, yeah, a couple characters we know, but like it solves the problem of having, you know, other performers do the beloved original characters. And you can build it around clips of the old show. So, you know, you get those for nostalgia. It can be like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of thing of like, this is what was happening behind the scenes of the original show. George and Krantz and Hildenstern are dead. There you go. <laughs> Disney call us, make this happen. <laughs> when I put the country into Google Maps, I yes. get <laughs> the country cafe on Wall Street. Sure. Well, so that's where the stagehands are. They're drinking. We have our pilot episode. No, they're closed right now. They open for breakfast at 9 a.m. <laughs> yeah, it's Wall Street after dark. Nothing's okay, happening. You've there. got you've got your premise. We could we can work with this. George and Krantz and uh, Hildenstern Mildred. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I'll see myself out. 
Okay, so in the absence of stagehands, uh, Fozzie is taking care of everything himself this week. If anything goes wrong, Kermit informs him that Fozzie will be fired. And naturally, the theater catches fire immediately. Somehow, and this happens through the episode, they mention this fire, and Fozzie manages to clue in everybody in the building about the fire situation, in- including the audience, or he tries to tell the audience, and he manages to hide it from Kermit. Uh, we never see the fire. Things do get a bit smoky on stage. So the fire, I think, is is if if the the backstage set that we know is is off stage right, and then the fire is is beyond that. I guess that's where wardrobe is. And, but then and there's I guess this the, bucket brigade that's passing. Yeah, like the, yeah, they're passing water towards the stage. Right. Oh, no, away from the stage. I guess it's a little unclear what direction the buckets are being moved yeah. in. But yeah, I think it's a, it the suggested that the fire is 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 continuing off away from the stage, like to where like the. I think in future seasons, that's where the little the stage door guy lives, and it's off that way. But it doesn't His really name make is any pops, sense. Pops, Adam. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Look, I forgot Hilda. I can't be expected to remember Pops tonight. Well, Pops is going to feature in your show. You got to learn who he is. It's true. He should. Anyway. Look at all this smoke. Ah, uh, that's not smoke. It's not smoke. No. Then no. What is it? Jet exhaust. Jet exhaust? I, I, just what I was going to say. Yes, yes. Oh, look out. Here comes another one. Duck. Uh, you okay? You okay? What was that? Oh, boy, that was a close one. Those planes get lower every day. Uh, Fuzzy, I didn't see any plane. Yeah, they get faster, too. This was very cute. And clearly Kermit is not buying it. But also, at the end of the episode, Fuzzy says, I'm sorry about the fire. And Kermit says, we had a fire here? Like, why wouldn't he go, whatever. <laughs> well, and even at the end of the scene, when Fozzie says, oh, here's another one, Kermit ducks. So my favorite thing about this, and I actually missed it the first time, is that look, Kermit and Fozzie are down at the desk. The Bucket Brigade is not happening yet. That's later. And Scooter is up on the balcony by the dressing rooms, like very small and far away the way it's shot. And he is, in fact, obscured by actual smoke. So I didn't even notice him the first time I watched it. And he's watching this whole thing, and he knows about the fire. So first he reacts to Fozzie lying, like, with shock and dismay. But then when Fozzie says, no, it's low-flying jets, he also ducks as if they're real. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is so cute, and he's just he's there the entire time. He doesn't have any lines. It's just, it's just, like, incredible puppetry. And then he, like, runs into one of the dressing rooms to hide on the last plane. I love that. It's very funny. I'm going to have to watch this episode again just to yeah, find it's worth, that. It's worth watching just that one scene for like all three of them are, are just doing great physical comedy, nice. even though the actual like plot and dialogue are not that good. <laughs> Man, Muppets are great. I think we can all agree. Uh, it may not surprise you to learn that my favorite part of the episode comes when it something else goes wrong. Gonzo's turbocharged pogo stick uh, jackhammers a hole into the floor of the stage Kermit calls for a carpenter and Fozzie dashes out and he's holding this wooden plank and he keeps whipping it around uh, when he's turning around. So Kermit has to keep ducking and it's wonderful. Hey, we can't have a hole in the stage. Uh, Fozzie, carpenter. A carpenter, carpenter, uh, yeah, coming here, sir. In the Where's the hole, sir? Where is it? Right over there. Oh, there. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, boy. Take the lights off that part of the stage. Uh, yes, sir. Scooter, lights off. Lights. Oh, boy. Fozzie, now I can't see a thing. Where are you? Uh, I'm, I'm over here by the hole. I'll follow the sound of your... Oh, oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Muppet Pratt Falls. 
Are pogo sticks still a thing? Do kids have them today? Pogo sticks? Yeah. They still exist. There is, I mean, I think the last time I saw one was like a decade ago when I went to visit the practice of like the the New York City Unicyclist Society. My friend oh, was God. like, oh, you'll learn to ride a unicycle. Let's go out to Grant's tomb where all the unicyclists go. You can, okay, wait, what? This is the most in-character thing you have said about yourself. <laughs> I went. And, this is surprising. Yeah, I used to end all of my bios by saying Michal aspires to someday perform a song on her ukulele from atop a unicycle. So I tried to learn a unicycle at Grant's, at Grant's tomb. tomb. <laughs> Who's buried in Grant's tomb? People who couldn't learn to ride unicycles, I guess. <laughs> And there were also people on pogo sticks there, just chilling and pogoing. Okay. You can buy a pogo stick on Amazon, starting at around $40. Huh. There's also a My First Foam Pogo Jumper pogo stick for kids for $17, and Ooh. a Vertego, V-U-R-T-E-G-O, might want to rethink that brand name, guys, mm-hmm. air-powered adult pogo stick with adjustable spring capable of jumping 10 feet high. You must be at least 75 pounds to ride this ride uh, for $500. So, yes, apparently pogo sticks are very much still a thing. Yeah. What does air-powered mean in that context? <laughs> I mean, I'll click through and find out if you really want to know. But I'm not curious. I don't know adjustable air pressure allows anyone to bounce. It's got a canister on it, sort of like on a desk chair, it looks like. It's a pneumatic pogo stick. Yeah, it's got a, it's got a piston. I imagine it goes when you jump on it. <laughs> that sounds great. I like yeah. it. Let's take it to Grand's Tomb. There is a video, but I'm not going to play it while we're recording the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but none of these are souped up like Gonzo's Turbo well, I think the, I think the air-powered think one is, very is much as close as we can get. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's take it to the Muppet Theater and see if it jackhammers through the floor. <laughs> or let's not and say we did. The fire situation just resolves. They mention it at the end of the episode. And presumably the fire doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, Fozzie spent the entire episode literally yelling fire in a crowded theater. And nobody evacuated the theater. That one chicken. Oh, this, yeah, the chicken was a nervous wreck. Okay, you know how I hate to be pedantic. Do you? But I have... Okay, so sometimes there is smoke on stage. And sometimes, basically whenever Roy Clark is performing, there is no smoke on stage. And yet the audience is totally unaware of this fire even when there is smoke on stage. And, like, they put the fire out, apparently. Apparently the fire is no problem at all, except it it burned for at least half an hour. Yeah. Uh, there are no sprinklers. There are no alarms. I am very concerned. Also, we don't know anything about how the fire started, what caused the fire, where no, the fire Fires fire start is. all the time, David. Don't ask questions. It just spontaneously generate. Electrical fire. I mean, a lit cigarette. It's 1978. Pops through a cigarette in the trash can. I mean, that I don't. I don't have issue with. I mean, there's also a canteen, which never gets mentioned, which is weird to me. I mean, granted, Fozzie's a moron, but if you needed to say, why is this theater filled with smoke, wouldn't it be much easier to say grease fire in the canteen than indoor fighter jets? I don't know. (laughs) Call me crazy. I mean, also, we will learn that Dr. Strangepork stole some coils from the electric toaster to fix the swine track, so... Right. The toaster there's went a, on the fridge. There's a laboratory in which things often explode. 
And yet no sprinklers, no alarm system. It was 1978. I, they had those things. I mean, they had fire departments, too. Yes, they do a charming number. They do. There's a lot that doesn't make sense about this episode, in addition to frogs and bears talking to each other. Well, that that's just reality. Yeah, they're talking that's, frogs and bears. That's fine. Our music this week definitely goes to the country. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, a certified banger. Always. Uh, yeah, so Rocky Top is a newer song than I realized. I went on this trip to Nashville with my grandparents when I was about, I don't know, eight, nine, something like that. And we stayed at the KOA Jellystone Park campground, which was great <laughs> as a kid because you got to go on a hayride with Yogi and Boo Boo. But their nightly entertainment, they had country singers, like local country singers would come and put on these free shows at the campground. And every single one of them did Rocky Top. So in my head, Rocky Top is like the banger to end all bangers in the country world. <laughs> it's not as, as old as I, I thought it was. It was written in 1967 by a married couple named Felice and Boodlow Bryant. <laughs> God bless. Which are amazing names. <laughs> Felice Bryant's actual name was Matilda Genevieve. Felice was a name that Boudlow gave to her. Boudlow Bryant's full name was Diodorius Boudlow Bryant. What? <laughs> I love this. It's so great. I would like to know about their heritage. Yeah. Like, I, what family gives their child the name Diodorius Boudlow Bryant? If you had thought of it, you would too. These people are delightful. I sort of want there to be a movie about them. They wrote a, a lot of other songs you've heard. They wrote Love Hurts. They wrote most of the Everly Brothers hits. They wrote All I Have to Do is Dream, Bye Bye Love, and Wake Up Little Susie. All I Have to Do is Dream, not to be confused with When I Need You. <laughs> yeah, not 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 as much, uh, you know, reaching out and holding love and feeling love. You just have to dream. Yeah. And here's a sweet little tidbit that I learned from Wikipedia. They eloped five days after meeting. And part of that was, and this actually inspired All I Have to Do is Dream. When they met, Felice was working as an elevator operator at a hotel. And when she saw Boodlow Bryant, she said that she recognized him immediately. She'd seen his face in a dream when she was eight years old and had, quote, looked for him forever. She was 19. And yeah, five uh-huh. days later, they got married. Oh and- my gosh went on to write a bunch of really great songs. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. Rocky Top, as it turns out, is the University of Tennessee's fight song. And it charted a couple times uh, on the country charts. The Osborne Brothers uh, put out the first version. It was a bluegrass version. And then uh, the singer Lynn Anderson had a version that went to number 17. This is fun. It's it's Roy Clark's plural <laughs> with uh, Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers. And it does that thing that actually the Muppets tend to do a lot in their YouTube videos nowadays, 
where it's the sort of Brady Bunch Zoom little boxes of people doing yeah, different things. Time. Yeah. And Roy plays several in- instruments. He plays the banjo twice. I mean, he, there were two of him playing the banjo. He doesn't. And you get it. <laughs> uh, he plays the mandolin, uh, the slide guitar, the fiddle, and the trumpet. Now, the trumpet is sort of like playing the trumpet in the style of Gonzo playing the trumpet, but but he does it. It's such a 70s variety show vibe with the colored backgrounds and the split screen, and, and he just seems so pleased with himself, himself. But it's also like a very 2020 Zoom, I'm alone in my apartment with all this equipment and musical instruments and have nothing else to do vibe. Also that. Yeah. Also some Muppets. Right. Barely. Yeah, but mostly it's just five Roy Clarks. Five guys named Roy. Our next number is also a Roy Clark number, but it's not so much country as it is sad, sad Parisian streets. (laughs) I I cut it down for length, but if you haven't watched the episode, know that right before this clip is a flute solo. Yesterday, moon was blue. Every crazy day brought something new to do. I use my magic age as if it were a wand and never saw the worst, the emptiness beyond. The game of love I play with arrogance and pride. I had a wild journey watching and listening to this because my thought process in the first watch was wow the song really sounds french i've never heard this song before but it sounds really french how weird it is to have roy clark do an incredibly french song then i started doing research a the song is french it's a charles asnavour song our old friend charles asnavour but the wildest thing is roy clark had recorded it and had a hit with it on the country chart. It seems so off-brand, which is not a complaint. I really like it. Well, yeah. but this is the thing about Roy Clark, and I guess I sort of alluded to this before, but he was really known for bridging the gap between middle-of-the-road country and middle-of-the-road pop. <laughs> and this is like, this is on that bridge. And like, you know, I, I know that probably sounds a little insulting, but I don't think there's anything wrong with middle-of-the-road. Middle of the road means it's a place where a lot of different people can meet. And I think there's something really admirable about that. Yeah, I I think that aspect is incredibly on brand for Roy Clark. So yeah, so this is a song that was originally written in French called Hier Encore, uh, which translates to Just Yesterday or Not So Long Ago from 1964. Charles Aznavour wrote uh, the original French lyrics and music. And the English lyrics are by Herbert Kretzmer. Who his biggest claim to fame was that he was the English translator of the musical Les Miserables. Oh, I, I should say the English title of it is Yesterday When I Was Young. Roy Clark's version peaked at number nine on the country chart and was his only top 40 pop hit. And it hit number 19 on the Hot 100. And interestingly, he performed the song at the baseball legend uh, Mickey Mantle's funeral in 1995 at Mickey Mantle's personal request. What a country. So... This is a super simple performance. It starts with a wide shot of the stage uh, with the the orchestra in the pit and the curtain closed and the curtain opens on 
I think it's a it's a redressed forest of despair with with just a fence added. So now we're now we're at like a farm of despair. We're at the outer border of the forest. Yeah, all they did was yeah, add we're the on fence. The outskirts. Right, but it's 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 funny that that's all you need. And he walks on with a dog, which looks a lot it looked a lot bigger than Muppy to me when it was a live dog. But then in close up, it's clearly Muppy. And the first note I took was why bother with the dog? Because I mean, the, the dog doesn't does nothing. He just so Roy Clark sits on the stage, sings a song. There's a dog like in the vicinity, <laughs> just lying there. <laughs> but it's very sweet. And there's this flute solo that I mentioned. And and so like for a lot of it, Roy Clark is sitting on the edge of the stage. I don't think his feet are actually dangling into the orchestra pit, but they might as well be. And this Muppet, who I don't think we've ever seen before, is playing the flute. And it is maybe the most 70s thing that has ever happened on this show so far. <laughs> Just like the way something. that this Muppet, I know, the way <laughs> this Muppet is styled with his his hair and his facial hair. And I'm a little bit obsessed. <laughs> I liked it. None of this is bad. <laughs> Listen, I like the song. This is the laziest Muppet Show yes. concept I've ever seen. Like, like, there are barely any Muppets visible. And they barely move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I mean. Like, I, I appreciate the simplicity, but like, why bother with the dog if the dog is going to do this little? Is is, is kind of, is like kind of my point. It's a subdued performance. They could have at least given him some backup singers, Sandy Duncan style, something, or like you know, all the Emmett Otter critters gradually appearing in building. I don't know. It just yeah, have him climb a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to enhance the nostalgia. But it worked. He sells it for some reason. It worked for me. Yeah, I think it's fine. For some reason, it worked for me. (laughs) Punctuation matters, Adam. (laughs) I think the minimalist use of Muppets works fine for this song. So, interestingly, the UK spot intersects pretty directly with the backstage plot this week. I don't want to set the world on fire. Already. <laughs> I just want to start a flame, a flame in your heart. So, because this is the Muppet Show, even the firemen called to put out the fire have aspirations of stardom. Yeah, so this is the the bucket brigade that Fozzie called to come put out the fire, singing, I don't want to set the world on fire. That's very nice, but at the same time, the fire is still raging. So, not great. So this song is from 1938. It was written by Benny Benjamin, Eddie Durham, Saul Marcus, and Eddie Seiler. Don't entirely understand how it took four people to write that song, but here we well, are. There were probably a close harmony group, and each one... Oh, oh, see, okay, that that makes sense. I retract my catty comment. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It it was originally recorded by Harlan Leonard and his Rockets in 1941. Yeah, it it took the song a few years to get recorded and and take off. It was a number one hit that same year for Horace Haight, who was a band leader, and also a hit for the Ink Spots, and that's kind of the version that is in the popular consciousness. It really took off uh, after Pearl Harbor, interestingly. How do you figure? There's a a, a vague, you know, anti-war 
quality to it if you squint. Um, <laughs> but I thought I thought that was interesting. And in the present day, the pop culture uh, association with this uh, that a lot of people have is that it's used very heavily in the Fallout video game series, which is a, like apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic. So that sort of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, heavily and, and creepily. Hey, so uh, I don't know if they were actually a close harmony group. There were four jazz men who often wrote together, not necessarily all four of them at the same time. They like have different variations on who they collaborated with on different songs. But Eddie Durham during the forties created Eddie Durham's all-star girl orchestra, an African-American all-female swing band that toured the U S and Canada. That's That's cool. cool. (laughs) Fallout and Bioshock. Sorry. I was like, wait, isn't it Bioshock? It's both. (laughs) So yeah, like apparently now it's just a post-apocalyptic creepy thing. Wild. Saul Marcus and Betty Benjamin reteamed in the fifties. And among the things they wrote, were Lonely Man for Elvis Presley and Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. Huh. I think it's particularly wild that uh, a semi-resolution to the backstage plot only happens in the UK spot. No, because the Bucket Brigade is after this. It's because the the firefighters refuse to fight the fire, they only want to sing. So then Fozzie organized... I mean, this is very unclear. I only got this on my second watch. So then Fozzie has to organize the Bucket Brigade of the of the cast basically. Right. Okay. To okay. actually put out the fire. The firefighters are not in that. I don't think. Yeah. This is not a resolution. It's maybe an escalation or maybe yeah. it's a continuation. Mostly an excuse to give Richard Hunt the chance to show off again, that he's like a legitimately excellent singer. Yeah. But it is weird. I, that, it's, it's, that, like, it's weird. It's so tied to the not plot. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I definitely got that uh, the, there was semi resolution. I don't know. I, no, the resolution happens. Well, if there's uh, the, the bucket brigade is the next scene, okay. which is not right. the UK spot. Um, I've got but, it out of order. Uh, but it is. It is not. Um, the story is not clearly told because, as Michal said, we we never see them put out the fire, right? Or learn where the fire is, or what caused it, or why it apparently did not spread for half an hour. Yet took half an hour to be put out. I almost wonder if originally the Gonzo thing was going to be the UK spot, and then they had Kermit and bandages at the end of the show and realized that they couldn't do that if everyone didn't see that sketch and had to swap them. But maybe that's just creating a logic that doesn't actually exist. I mean, this is a self-contained scene. The show could exist without it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that, I mean, uh, hi, pedantic. Welcome to me. (laughs) In, In this UK spot, Fozzie crosses the stage with a fire extinguisher which he apparently does not use because then for some reason there's a bucket brigade involved. Well, maybe it was yeah. not enough or yeah, they're not sure. always effective. I mean, he also uses a, a life preserver from a boat to <laughs> carry a chicken <laughs> away from the fire, which is very cute. It is very cute. Doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> uh, the wiki says that the lead singer of these singing firemen is Peter Friedman, but I, I was pretty sure that was Richard Hunt. I imagine that, I mean, it's close harmony group, so lead singer is sort of uh, in the ear of the beholder, I guess. Yeah. Ear of the behearer. <laughs> behearer, yeah. But, but Richard's definitely singing the top line, and at least on the mix that we hear on Disney Plus is the loudest. The wiki doesn't know everything, just most things. So speaking of Gonzo and pogo sticks, we get what is introduced as yodeling 
I'm not sure I would call it that. <laughs> I would not. So Kermit introduces this as Gonzo yodeling some Rimsky Korsakov, which he sort of does. He's sort of yowling along to a recording of Nikolai Rimsky Korsakov's Sherazade Opus 35 which is a symphonic suite based on the Arabian Nights slash 1001 Nights stories. And this piece of music is from 1888, so shout out to the public domain. And uh, Shahrazadi was the like narrator storyteller of the 1001 Nights. And this is, I think, one of the more unhinged Gonzo performances, which is saying something. <laughs> he, he lets go in a way that is... Almost upsetting. <laughs> I mean, he's very enthusiastic. He's not yeah. yodeling, but he's very enthusiastic. Yeah. I mean, I was captivated by whatever it is that he's doing, but like Julie Andrews, not really a yodeler, Argonzo. <laughs> Arguably less than Julie Andrews. Yeah. And we end on a, a very yeehaw note. Sally used to carry my books to school. Sally was a good old girl. She helped me with my homework because I was a fool. Sally was a good old girl. And if you wanted a kiss or a little bitty squeeze, she was always willing and do her best to please. A girl made to love and not made to tease. Sally was a good old girl. Sally was a good old girl. Sally was a good old girl. No matter what the request, she gave it her best. Sally was a good old girl. Mm-hmm. Sally was a slut. Well, okay, when they say Sally was a good old girl, it seems to have a lot of definitions within the same song. Yeah, I mean, she she's very... Uh, she's very helpful. Helpful, very <laughs> studious. Yeah, she helps you with your homework, she carries your books, she helps she's her parents reader. make money, and whenever you need a kiss, she's available, apparently. She Her family is poor, and she's willing to do whatever it takes to help them out. I mean, honestly, throw in a reference to the Rio de la Plata, and this could be something out of Evita. Like, <laughs> it's because <laughs> the thing is, is like, yeah, the, there is an edge of Sally as a slut, but it's never negative. It's like, right, good yeah, for you, Sally. It's it's very you know hashtag girl boss. <laughs> the second verse is all about her selling neckties to help her family. But then sometimes she gives them away to guys who can't afford them because she's too nice. That feels like a metaphor. But then the third verse is this. She was a favorite with all the men. Sally was a good old girl. All the ladies despised her then, but Sally was a good old girl. All the ladies talked about her, but Sally didn't care. She just kept on working and doing her share. She wound up married to a millionaire. Sally was a good old girl. So he's not saying she's a gold digger. I mean, that sounds like a really positive portrayal of a sex worker, frankly. Yeah. And then, like, she pretty womaned and everything's great. Like, I, I see no, I see no problem with this song. I just particularly enjoy that all of the barnyard animals are really on board with this sentiment. For me, the moment that makes this is when 
we see the fox in the chicken coop, like <laughs> literally gnawing on the neck of a chicken who is not yet dead. And then they realize that the song is is a bop. And so he stops trying to murder the chicken and they start singing along instead. <laughs> I missed that. I'm going to have to go back. Yeah. And there's a horn section. This is swinging. Yeah. So uh, Sally was a good old girl. It was written in 1962 by Harlan Howard. It was first recorded by Hank Cochran and Roy Clark himself recorded it in 1963. It's been recorded by a bunch of people. There's a Bobby Darren version. There's a Fats Domino version, a Waylon Jennings version. Yeah. It's a good time. Like Sally. Sally. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey. What? And get out of show business. All right, let's take care of some show business. We have the Swedish chef uh, rolling out a massively unwieldy amount of dough <laughs> or der do der nordy dough fights back and uh steals the chef's rolling pin and knocks him out i think this is real dough either it's real dough or it's something that they made the consistency of dough very believably right which why wouldn't it be real dough i guess but it's just i just love that it's like it's just this anything can be a puppet moment because like you just need to stick a hand under it and it looks alive yeah and it's great. it can come to life yeah. It was pretty cool. I mean, it also made me wonder, did Frank, because it's Frank Oz's voice when the dough comes to life, is it somebody else's hands this week in The Chef? We'll never know. Well, things I wonder about sometimes. <laughs> Services we try to provide to our listeners, but don't <laughs> That's always That's a great question, to. but <laughs> yeah. we'll never know. Yep, great. All right, let's move on to Pigs in Space. The Swine Trek crew is not described in adjectives by a narrator this week, but fortunately... The resourceful Dr. Strangepork is able to fix the control panel. If Dr. Strangepork can't restore power to the control panel, we'll be marooned in space forever. Oh, no! Well, look at the bright side, my dear. At least you will spend the rest of your days with me. That's the bright side? Well, I fixed the control panel. Oh, that's wonderful, Doctor. Yeah, it was faulty filing. Mm, nice work, Dr. Strangepork. Oh, it was nothing, Link. Actually, I just used some wires from the electric toaster. Mm, good thing. This seemed to me such a strange way to refer to a toaster that I went down a little bit of a Google hole trying to figure out were electric toasters like a new thing in the 70s that they would still call it an electric toaster. But no, they were around since the turn of the century. Like They were invented in like 1890-something. So I don't know what that's about. I also, again, this is a this is a fool's errand. But what? Why would using parts of the toaster to repair the control panel in another room, like make trap doors appear in the floor, and like teleport other creatures into them? I don't. I think you're asking too much. I know, and it's like a trope. It's like a thing in cartoons. I get it. Toasters are funny. Toasters are funny. Invisible trapdoors are funny. Always, always. Muppets popping up at random. So what's happening is uh, after the control panel is fixed, Link tries pulling a lever. And now all the levers yoink members of the crew out of frame and it summons up Muppets at random to take their place. So we see Gonzo and Beaker and a chicken and a Kuzbanian lunch encounter monster, uh, a witch doctor puppet whom we will meet again next week, our old friend the chopped liver monster from the planet Zabar, and also Statler. They all just pop into the swine track to say hello. And yes, they wouldn't show up on a spaceship in space. It's just not how toasters work. It was repaired work. by want, a toaster. I want delicious bread. <laughs> I can't help you with this. 
Well, you get some delicious chopped liver. No. <laughs> you don't want to put chopped liver in a toaster. That would make a mess. <laughs> Since we're apparently in season one, we have a talk spot this week. Kermit and Roy Clark discuss Roy's musical family and his life back on the farm. My dad still runs the farm back in Virginia where he keeps chickens. And a lot of times I get to miss the place out traveling all the time. Yeah, well, listen, Roy, we could make you feel right at home because, you know, we keep chickens. Really? Sure. <laughs> Kermit, uh, if you keep chickens, could uh, you keep these away? Well, uh, no, no. Yes, no. Well, we also, uh, but we also keep ducks, you know. Right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have any soup to go with these quackers? You know what kind of joke we call that in Virginia? Bad? It's cute. It's not brilliant, but it's cute. That's he on a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> I've missed the talk spot. I didn't realize it until this happened. It's, yeah, it's sweet. Well, it's nice to get a sense of who these guest stars are as people. And there's attempts to do that with the dressing room sketches but somehow this feels like a little more genuine even though it's just as scripted yeah and they've done this joke before with guest stars saying wow you could eat this whole cast or bruce forsyth trying to buy a duck for nefarious purposes is this the first time we've seen a second duck i was astonished that there's a second duck right <laughs> i i freaked out I was like, there are two of them they're identical right or at least they're they're similar they're they the same kind of yeah. puppet yeah Two ducks. The At The Dance sketch has also gone country this week. You know, my husband weighs five tons. Oh, that sounds like a lot of bull. It is, darling. It is. Oh, why don't y'all run away with me? I can't. I gotta think of the wife and eggs. (laughs) Why is that rooster winking at your wife? I think he's trying to get my goat. Yeah. It's a lot of bull, darling. Cause, cause you know what I'm saying? <laughs> also that. I just love that delivery. It so is, hurt. darling. It is. <laughs> I can feel the eyebrows waggling. I like this. I like it whenever there's a slight variation on At The Dance. And it's certainly... Sales over the low bar set by the tennis themed one. I was going to say, you like when there's variation, except when it's about tennis. <laughs> Although those tiny tennis balls were cute. But yeah, barn dance jokes. I got no beef with them. I thought for once the show really caught fire. <laughs> I thought it burned itself out, same as always. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing the Gilda Radner episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. 